This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today we are going to be reviewing the latest episode of Star Trek Progeny called Dreamcatcher. And we're also going to talk and play excerpts from, talk about and play excerpts from the interviews that I did with the Discovery cast and showrunner at New York Comic Con, where they're talking about season four. So before we get to all that, we're going to start with some news about the Star Trek movie, which is exactly what Tony has been predicting for quite some time. So the short version is the 2023 Star Trek movie uh, that we've been talking about has moved date from June to December, essentially the holiday season, which sounds like, yeah, technically it's a delay, but it's it's not really about the Star Trek movie. No, it's it's sort of about movies in general and Paramount's whole plan. They've basically moved all of their movies um, over the last couple months, and this is kind of the latest grouping. So a 2022 Transformers movie is now going to come out in 2023 on the date that Star Trek was supposed to come out. And then the Star Trek movie moves into the Christmas season 2023. Which is kind of traditional for Star Trek movies to come out around the holiday season. Yeah, I think before the three J.J. Abrams movies, which were all uh, summer releases, right. I think seven out of ten of the previous Star Trek movies, including Motion Picture, which was the first of that series, were all holiday season. And holiday season is, you know, just as big as summer season these days. Doing it then is fine. The, the main thing is, I like the fact that Paramount could have moved a bunch of movies, and the Star Trek was kind of the last one on their calendar. They could have moved it back into TBA, but they gave it a date, which means they still show a level of confidence, uh, which we talked about last week uh, with the new head of the studio who sounded bullish on Star Trek, but also sounded like he didn't know what they were going to do next. So this sounds like they feel confident. This is going to be the Matt Shackman directed, J.J. Abrams produced, based on a script uh, from the writer of uh, the Captain Marvel movie. So... We still don't know what that movie is, right? <laughs> but apparently Paramount is happy to move forward. We still don't know like when it's set, like what timeline it's in. Are, are there familiar cast members? We don't know. We literally don't know anything. I mean, there's indications that it will continue the Kelvin universe and characters, but that isn't 100% confirmed. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Obviously, it's produced by J.J. Abrams. You know, we're still waiting for all that, but it's good to see that, you know, Star Trek is still happening at Paramount Pictures on the big screen. The new head of the studio has talked about how live action movies are very important to franchises, and they are. You know, yeah. You wouldn't have eight Marvel TV shows on Disney Plus if it weren't for the fact that the <laughs> MCU is a huge thing, right? You think? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the big question is will this movie try to? go for that synergy of, you know, ensuring that what's happening on the Paramount Plus side is going to be reflected in the movie and vice versa. Let's say it's it's just straight up Star Trek for Chris Pine and the gang out for one more adventure in 2023. And in the same year, you've got Picard season three and you've got Strange New World season two and, you know, maybe a season of discovery and some lower decks or whatever. It's hard to see how that all fits together. Yeah. But you know, maybe they can all make it work. Kovic will make it work. 
or COVID. <laughs> Cronenberg's going to come in and save the day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we could speculate all we want about what the next Star Trek movie is, but at least it looks like there is one. I mean, yes, we could all be Jade and say we've heard this all before, but they haven't put a date before. They did hire a director once before. That movie still didn't have a date. So they've got a date. They've got a director. This one is as close as we've come since beyond to being real. But yeah, I, you know, I'm kind of with the people. I mean, there's some people like, I don't believe anything's happening. It's all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Well, we know those grumps. Something is happening. Money is being spent. Um, But yeah, you know, when they start building sets, when pre-production starts, that's when I'm going to be feeling like this is really going to happen. And that, that wouldn't happen for still a little while because now they've got 25 months to make the movie. Right. No, and it's part of why you've been saying, like, uh, they'd have to start now for it to come out on the original timeline that they were thinking. And that wasn't happening. It hadn't started. Yeah, they just bought themselves six months to start doing all those kinds of things you need to have doing. Yep. And then there's a little more sort of businessy, schedule-y Star Trek news, which is that the uh, head of scripted programming, David Nevins, uh, was talking about Star Trek shows, which we always love to hear. And he actually said the words, are you ready? Strange New Worlds will be on the air next spring, which nobody said yet. So this is a kind of official announcement. We don't have an exact date, but it narrows it down. I've been predicting May. I still feel pretty confident about that. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's April or June either. Um, so it's somewhere, somewhere in that zone. Picard is coming in February. That's so, yeah, April, May kind of makes sense for Strange New Worlds. Yep. This came out of an interview. Um, you know, he's the head of all scripted programming for Paramount Plus. So he's got a lot of stuff going on that includes animation and it includes, you know, comedy and drama. But when he was asked about what is the future of Paramount Plus look like, you know, he immediately gravitated to talking about how it's about, he said, definitely franchise first. Then he immediately said, we're building out the Star Trek franchise. We're building on the strength of franchises that we own. So Star Trek continues to be front and center for Paramount Plus and is still something that they're hyping and something that is top of mind for him. Although they're also, you know, looking into other things this week. They just announced a Fatal Attraction TV show. Yeah, I don't know what that's about but i mean i know what it's about i don't know who i don't know who asked for it (laughs) well you know someone is going through the catalog of what do we own and Uh, what can we turn into a tv show um you know they've got a godfather tv show coming out so you know they aren't betting at all on star trek obviously which they shouldn't but they're still betting on star trek which is good yeah yeah you know, he was kind of straight up asked what's next for Star Trek, and he, you know, outlined the five shows we know about, but didn't really say anything about what's next. And right. uh, so I guess we'll leave that to Alex or someone to hint at. Well, Alex has talked about a Starfleet Academy show I, that does appear to be an active development. But, you know, if it ever happens, who knows? The Section 31 show has gone through a bunch of scripts and maybe that waxes happen. and wanes. <laughs> it comes yeah. ebbs and flows. <laughs> I mean, as I understand it, there's different people within the organization who are more jazzed about it than others, you know, so it has advocates, but 
Bowie and Erica have moved on to a Netflix series. They're now showrunners on. They're not working on Discovery anymore. So they're out of the picture. I mean, not that they couldn't not that they couldn't be brought back in if something came to life and their show was done. As showrunners, they would definitely come back to do Section 31. But I'm not sure what the things need to happen to get them to do that green light. Yeah, I mean, they still have to figure out what the appetite is, which is always a very tricky question to try to answer. We have a little bit of Picard news, like just a tiny little bit. A morsel of Picard. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and the strange thing is this is season three news. And you're like, wait, are we missing a season? So season two is still coming out in February, but they're shooting season three now. So we're learning new things about season three. And as we talked about before, we know that season three involves a new Starfleet ship of some sort, a 24th century ship. We've seen pictures of it online from the showrunners. It's not a secret. And now we're getting an idea of why it looks so right. (laughs) Familiar. Exactly. (laughs) The production designer and the showrunner shared images of the art department, which includes some familiar faces, including Darren Docterman and Michael and Denise Akuda. Yeah, which is really good news for everybody. We've seen a lot of acutograms, essentially, for this new ship. So, obviously, I mean, I'm sure they're doing lots of things, but um, they've definitely made sure that because those look as they should, you know, with a couple extra decades of development. And Oh, and Doug Drexler is on board as well. Yeah, yeah, he's he's I mean, we've talked about his Facebook posts before, which are fantastic. So he had posted on Facebook that he's involved in Star Trek Picard also. More and more, it feels like, I mean, because I'm like both excited and worried because I've always said for Picard, I don't want it to just become the next, next generation. Is it like Admiral Picard on a straight up Starfleet ship just doing normal Starfleet things? I don't know. Just, I'm not sure I want to see that show. I don't know what they're doing, but I'm hoping it's not just that where it's just kind of. No, and I, I would worry more about that if they said, we've got all the writers back from the last season of Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> um, but this is, you know, designers and, you know, production designers who know how things are supposed to look and are also good at extrapolating, deciding how something new is supposed to look is something they're great at. They're not, you know, they're not about nostalgia. They're about practical yet beautiful design. But obviously they've gone out of their way to get elements of the band back together so that they can do a live action 24th century show with a lot of Starfleet accoutrement. Yeah. Um, and cause season one really isn't that. And even season two, isn't that it doesn't look like cause it's, it's essentially time travel and alternate universe stuff. Right. So get excited for another 2023 thing. <laughs> <laughs> Start marking your calendar now. I know that this is not happening, but it would be great if it were that J.J. Abrams and Alex Kurtzman and the Paramount people, and they've all been working on the super secret plan to link it up. And somehow Picard is going to be involved in a movie that involves Chris Pine, and it's going to be like Generations, and, you know, it's all going to fit together. Like, but it's not. I'm just, that's like, that's just a fantasy of mine, but it's not going to do that. No. Well, you can write some fan fiction. (laughs) <laughs> let's talk about discovery season four i mean it's amazing it's it's really snuck up on us this fourth season of discovery i think one of the reasons why seasons 
two and three had a lot of more hype as they were coming and buzz. Well, one thing is, you know, we've got an active Star Trek show um, happening, Prodigy, which just launched, and that's creating its own hype. But also, both of those seasons had these these big hooks, right? So we they because the seasons before, like we ended on the Enterprise in season one, and we ended on the jump to the thirty second century in season two, and both of those created these big mysteries that kind of got you going. Where season three ended with Michael being promoted, setting her up as captain. That's kind of the big thing for season four, but it's not, there's no mystery to that. Yeah. There were no major dangling threads, except maybe like, where is Saru going to be? Do you guys remember all the, what is the burn and all that? There was all this stuff they were doing and, (laughs) you know, like is grudge actually a super being. And there was like, you know, we were doing theory articles about season three before it even happened. Cause it was just, it had our, little imaginations running wild and that really isn't the case we kind of know what's happening with season four there's a big gravitational anomaly uh threatening the galaxy and you know michael burnham is going to save the galaxy you know we kind of again again um that doesn't you know spoil that's not a criticism because by the way everyone on star trek saves the galaxy at some point the mystery will be in the details um before we get into the interviews we did get a release of photos from the first two episodes the first episode is called Kobayashi Maru. Oh, I wonder what that means. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it's kind of obvious what it means because I mean, we know we all know what it means, but yes. one of the photos which you've seen a shot of this in the trailers shows we uh, both the president of the Federation, President Rillick and Captain Burnham in her new one of her new outfits. Yeah, she's even in these photos she's got a couple of different outfits. Addressing a crowd which almost certainly must be cadets because they're in some kind of new uniform. It's in a location that doesn't appear to be the Discovery. In fact, the behind the scenes shot shows it's one of these cool virtual sets they built um, right. with, with the new AR wall. Anything else from the episode one photos that jumped out at you? Just more that I, I end up staring at the uniforms and being a little judgy, I'm going to be honest. Um, <laughs> I don't think that I, I really think that the casual clothing on Discovery is always great. And I just think they the uniforms just never look practical to me. It's definitely an improvement over the season Three, at least on the discovery itself, because the gray on the gray wasn't going to work. Yeah. But like there's a scene, I mean, Reese gets to sit in the command chair. We see there's a photo of him. But even just it's I feel like it's an awkward uh, shirt to sit in. (laughs) You know, it's I don't know. So the second episode is called Anomaly, which we know is the big deal this season. They've been talking about it. And yes, there's an episode of Star Trek named Anomaly from Enterprise. Some people were like really bent out of shape that they're using an episode title again. This is one of those things I'm like, really? Yeah, of all the things on your list, like that is not a big one for me. And I, you know, the only thing I wish is that they'd put the episode titles on the screen. Yeah. The one thing that jumped out to me from these photos is you could clearly see that Saru in Captain's uniform back on the Discovery uh, dueling captains, <laughs> so we know that his time on Kaminar is probably going to be limited. Right. Shall we just jump into your interviews? 
Yeah. So these were done on uh, at New York Comic Con. And it's one of those situations, just like uh, Tony's interviews for Prodigy that we played a while back, where you're basically there with other people from other outlets. And so everybody kind of asks their question. And if you're lucky, then you get to ask two. Um, and so it's 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 just a mishmash of hoping that you can get something good between what they asked and what we asked. So the first thing we want to play for you is they uh, grouped together Wilson Cruz, Blue Del Barrio, and Anthony Rapp. And so the first thing uh, we wanted to talk to them about was because, you know, we all watch Star Trek and we know we have a communications officer and a science officer and this and that. And so uh, we asked them to clarify each of their sort of roles, ranks, and jobs. I mean, I don't know exactly how it would be. Like, I'm a commander, Paul Stamets, but uh, a senior science officer, I would say, in charge of the spore drive, but is all hands on deck in terms of any kind of major scientific or sometimes engineering question that he can lend his brains and talent to. Yeah. Is that specific enough? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> how, about, how about the other two? I think Adir is a kind of a mix. They're definitely a science officer. Mm-hmm. That, right, mm-hmm. yeah. And, I mean, they spend most of their time in engineering uh, as well. But that's only because I'm down there. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> but I think they are sort of a mixed bag, science officer on top of everything else. But and, do you have, like, a specific... Sorry, just to, do you have a specific area that, like, is your specialty? I don't. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think you're a science officer. That's why you wear the blue uniform. Yeah. No. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm trying to think if there's anything more specific oh, right, within right. that. Um, I mean, super math, math brain, and, math and, and algorithm and programming stuff. Right? Math, math and programming, and I think history. Um, mm. I think that there's a very specific reason they wanted to come on Discovery in the first place, and they had a vast knowledge of what was already on the ship to begin with. I mean, um, Adir is our, our, our secret weapon. I mean, they learn, <laughs> like, every problem that doesn't seem solvable. We're like, well, we'll just ask Adira. It is, out. I think that's why it's hard to pinpoint. I think they're that person that you're like, I, this is a weird, weird thing to ask about. Who would know this? Maybe this person who knows, like, weird facts about things, about, like, a, a wide variety of things. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Culver is not only, well, he also is a commander, so he's also a, a senior a uh, medical officer, but he's also the ship's counselor. So at this season, we actually do see him uh, combining those two occupations, and it's um, it's a heavy lift. There's two takeaways from that. <laughs> One is, how do they not know? <laughs> well, they don't know because the it's not in their scripts, and it's not... I mean, I don't blame the actors necessarily. So Stamets, it feels like he's in charge of science, but no one ever says it. But this gets back to the, you know, the old thing of there's always this conflation with Stamets. Is he a scientist? Is he an engineer? Because he ends up doing engineering things sometimes. And it just seems to be a little bit of a mess. For Dr. Culber, how is he not? Where's this mystery chief medical officer? Because... Um, you know, he's a commander um, and he's a senior medical officer. Yeah. So there's there's <laughs> all I... of these, you know, since season one, there's these invisible, you know, there's an invisible chief, uh, uh, chief engineer. Although I guess now it's Jet Reno. 
who's only going to show up, although apparently she's going to show up more this season than we thought, even though she only was there to shoot for like two or three weeks. Probably doesn't matter to most people, but uh, for, you know. I think it does matter to fans to some degree. And I think you want to feel like if there was a problem, you know who would be speaking up and dealing with it. And I mean, definitely on some of the other shows in the past, there's been some like, why is why isn't Balana chiming in on that? But <laughs> I do feel like it would be better if they really could be more specific about what they're doing because they would have very specific roles on the ship. How do they know what to do every day? What does Adira do at the beginning of the day and what are their responsibilities? Well, it does sound like Adira is going to be more involved. We know that Adira is now in Starfleet, I guess. Yep. They are an ensign. And this talk about Adira being the secret weapon, you know, you could get, you know, Wesley vibes, but you could also get seven vibes, you know, that Adira is the super genius person who's going to be able to help, you know, math their way out of their problems, which is very Star Trek. So I I like that. I think it's good to have a character like that on the show. Yeah, I would say I don't even get a Wesley vibe because Wesley was like truly naive in so many ways. Um, And I don't think that Adira is naive in that same way. Now, speaking of Adira, one of your favorite things to look for with the character is the whole tie into being a Trill, which, of course, being human makes it even more weird that Adira is a host. So Adira is actually Adira Tall, Tall being the symbiote. Symbiont. So I asked Blue specifically, um, were they going to explore more about having the symbiont inside them? And is that a big storyline? I think it exists constantly, but I do think that it is still an area that can be delved further into. Um, someone asked a similar question earlier, and I would really like to uh, at some point kind of go into the history of each of these previous hosts um and and where they came from and what like what this symbiont contains and means and like what who these consciousnesses are i would really like to touch on more that all sounds nice but generally the answer to your question is not really you know yeah and i gotta say i'm disappointed like i was disappointed that it was resolved so quickly last season because i just thought imagine being a human who discovers but doesn't remember how you have a symbiont inside you. Like there was so much to explore in that that was just sort of left off to the side once they went to trail and came back and all of that. And so I was hoping they'd dig into it more. I'm glad that Blue wants to dig into it more because that gives me hope that maybe um, maybe it will get covered in a future season or come into a story later. I really like the character and the actor. Me too. We've talked a little bit about this in the past. I feel that one of the issues is there's only so much Adira you could put in any given episode. And so much of that is devoted to the ghost boyfriend that you, you could, so you, Adira can be the super genius solving the problem. And then Adira goes off to deal with their ghost boyfriend. And we, that you don't have any time left to explore This huge thing, this very, very big thing. The sooner the ghost boyfriend could be pulled out of them and put into a real body and then perhaps sent to um, another ship, the better. 
So it sounds I'm, terrible. I'm sorry. I'm, but I, I said it. Well, first of all, I agree with you. And second of all, that's a beautiful way to lead into our next interview bite. <laughs> because, the, you know, the fact is that on Discovering, I mean, really in all of Star Trek, we've had so many characters who, who die and come back. So that's nothing new. But wow, Discovery really has a lot of them. <laughs> So one of the questions that was asked of Wilson Cruz was like, how does it affect you, this, the sense that, that death isn't really existing in the way that we think of it? First of all, yes, because how do I put this without it? Um, that, that, the, the way that gray is, is corporeal um, and the way that, um, that Dr. Culver came back to life um, aren't necessarily ways that everyone is going to be able to, right? Like death is still finite. It's just that, you know, we discovered uh, a couple of ways where we can finagle it. How about that? Mm-hmm. Without giving away too much. But yes, there is, there is a, we do touch on it. I like that he says finagle it. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm glad that they are still talking about the impact of those events. Death has to have meaning on a TV show. Um, for No, and that's some... kind of the whole, like, Star Trek Picard talks about that as a big theme of how death yeah. gives our lives meaning. But we do know that Grey is coming back. The big question is how. And it sounds like whatever they do, they haven't invented something that they could do again you know something special maybe unique to trill physiology i don't yet because we don't want you know this this is the con's blood situation of oh well you know now you could use that for everyone right right no it is the same thing i I was you know voyager and keeping up with delta flyers my usual thing that i say every week but we're watching mortal coil and uh, Seven uses, you know, nanoprobes to bring Neelix back to life. And on the Delta Flyers, they're like, why couldn't everybody use that all the time? So I think part of it with Grey is that um, the fact that there is a ghost boyfriend means that Grey isn't dead, dead. So there was there was three total interview blocks. The second one uh, was with Sinequa Martin-Green and the co-showrunner Michelle Paradise. and. They really reveal some secrets, don't they? They just oh, spill it all, those two. <laughs> Regular fans of this podcast will know that in, in the case of both of these people, they're both lovely, wonderful people, but they are, are well-trained and have done enough media coaching. They basically never say anything. They just say very nice things and you don't read, you know, they never spill any secrets. No, they're very charming, but they don't tell you anything and that's we've interviewed Sonequa a bunch and she's you know delightful but when you ask her something she somehow you feel like that answer was just waiting and she was just gonna she knew what she had to say and and they just shape it around your question there was one question going back to something we were talking about earlier with how they kind of don't pay enough attention to who's the head of this department who's the head of that department there's one there's one character where they really spent a lot of time focusing on this and therefore another character, which is Michael's position has always been very important of what is her position on the ship? What is her rank? Is she first officer? Is she, you know, and she's and moved around a lot. 
Right. And it, the yang to her yin has always been Saru, right? So wherever Michael is, you're always wondering where is Saru because they started off as rivals and they've kind of gone back and forth on that. And of course, Saru was made captain last season. And then Michael was made captain also, but also given command of the ship. Since we know that, you know, they're not going to leave Saru on Kamnar, the obvious question asked is, okay, so what does that do to this relationship? You know, I, I, I feel like Burnham and Saru have been on a, a journey together in their relationship. And I, I, I think season three uh, was uh, was really big for both of them in terms of, um, you know, they've, they've had moments, obviously, in seasons one and two, but season three, it kind of some things kind of came to a head a little bit in terms of uh, their friendship and loyalty and trust and uh, and and those sorts of things. And it feels like by the end of season three, they've worked through some of those uh, or a, a lot of those struggles and have gotten to a, a new place that's really, really great. And so I think uh, in season four, you will see that relationship solidified in whatever form it ultimately takes between the two of them. Um, a lot of mutual respect and love and care and support for one another, uh, whatever their roles may be. I think that's exactly it. I'll add how uh, brilliant Doug Jones is and how much I flip and love him. Um, <laughs> um, and just what a joy it is to, to, to be, you know, uh, you know, his sister of sorts in the story. Um, I, I love, I love Burnham and Saru. I, I really do. Such a, such a deep, dear place in my heart. <laughs> I mean, I do agree with Sonequa Martin-Green that Doug Jones is brilliant and I flip and love him. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> so we have, I, I think what I got from this is that they, I feel like there's not going to be a whole lot of conflict between them. It sounds like there's not going to be any conflict between well, them. Well, that, that's maybe a more accurate way of putting it. <laughs> all of that is behind them, that somehow they're going to coexist as co-captains, or not even, but that's the thing, they aren't going to be co-captains, because the <laughs> ship can only have one commander, but it can have multiple. I mean, we saw this in the Star Trek movies where there were, you know, everyone was a captain, right? Scotty was a captain. Spock was a captain. Kirk was a captain, right? So Kirk uh, was the captain. Exactly. (laughs) So the question is, what is Saru in season four if he's a captain, but he's on the ship, you know, getting back to one of the other characters? I think the obvious thing is he's probably going to be first officer, right? That would make sense. Because Tilly, I mean... I, yeah. God, God bless her. I love Tilly, but she's not a first officer. But I love no. her. <laughs> well, and not only that, like, you know, through the publicity photos, we could see, like, everyone's got a promotion on the ship, basically, right? The ship is, like, rife with commanders and lieutenant commanders. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, people are like, well, maybe Reese is now first officer because Reese is in the chair. But, you know, we, you know, I don't think Reese is going to be first officer. No, um, I don't think so either. It makes sense that Saru could become a, at least her right-hand man, confidant, something like that. That they're back to brotherly, sisterly thing, but no longer rivals. Because he now has a, I think his heart is, you know, because he's talked about this in our interview with him and others that, you know, his, part of his heart is still with Kaminar. I don't think he's as obsessed with his Starfleet career anymore, maybe. Cause right. He's, he's got bigger fish to fry. And that allows him to almost transcend 
this obsession over who's in charge. I was just going to say he was separate from his people for so long until they moved into the future, really. So I'm very much looking forward to what they do with Saru and, you know, what Doug does in um, season four. So while I had these folks, I tried to get some information about what comes after season four, meaning season five. And I was trying to find out, like, is there going to be a cliffhanger like there has been before leading to season five? And have you started thinking about season five? And is there a writer's room for season five? And basically, I got a whole lot of nothing. (laughs) Yeah. I got a reiteration of how things had gone before and then just a lot of enthusiasm and then um, and then just hope that there will be more. The I mean, she said, you know, if we get picked up for season five, you know, that'll be exciting news. Clearly for seasons one and two, they knew they were writing towards another season. Right. It feels like for season three, the show could have ended. Yes. Michael's captain. You know, we know they're going to rebuild the Federation. They're in the new future. And there certainly was no cliffhanger. Um, There were, you know, things to be resolved. But but if they'd ended it, it would have felt resolved. Right. But but they were also writing to Michael being captain. They knew that from the beginning. Right. They had an end point. So and they they do write the show knowing we're going to end the season on X, but it almost feels like at least for season three, part of that X you know, they weren't saying we need to make sure we set up the next season. Maybe they weren't sure they were going to get another season. I expect there is a season five. I think that might be the last season, but you know, are they writing to another cliffhangery thing? I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I think, you know, I would like to have more seasons, but I do think it might like when they started, they were the only Star Trek show. And now they've launched a new phase of the franchise. So let's move on to a little bit of a more boisterous interview you had. (laughs) Very boisterous. With a kind of odd pairing because, you know, it's, it's a function of who's at these events. So they grouped people together and. And there were kind of two extra actors they had. So they grouped together David Ajala and Mary Weisman. But it it sounds like even though they're kind of an odd couple, it was fun, right? Yeah. I mean, first, because they paired them up and I was thinking like, you know, Tilly's the best friend and Book is the boyfriend. So I was thinking, oh, maybe they have a lot of scenes together and there's something going on. And I asked about that and they were like, no, not really. So they didn't really get into that. But they were having a great time together (laughs) doing those interviews. And so then, you know, we all sort of honed in on more specific questions. And one of the first things that was asked was, Tilly's been through this journey. She's been the acting captain. She's been the first officer. So how does that factor into who she is uh, in the new season? That experience affects her so much this season, I think. Both maybe having had to step up to the plate before she was ready Mm. Um, and having, uh, I think she intellectually knows that she didn't fail, that it's not her fault that Osira took the ship, that she didn't have all the information, didn't know what that ship could do to there, like all that stuff. I still think the fact that, that she took command and something lost the ship 
would be an enormous blow to her confidence mm-hmm. and make her question a lot of stuff. So I think you kind of, we pick up with her, um, uh, pa- you know, some time has passed since the events of, of that season, but still sort of not really sure what to make of it and not, and everything that used to be really comfortable isn't sitting as comfortably as it used to, if that makes sense. Interesting. The sense I get from that, again, is that she acknowledges that she was not ready to be first officer, indicating that she's not going to be first officer anymore, as we were just talking about. And she now has her own separate issues to deal with. It's going to have an effect on her. It's not just going to be this thing that happened that we forget about. I mean, that would have a pretty big effect on somebody. And this is another acknowledgement. I think we've heard this from other people, and it's kind of obvious from other things we've seen that unlike previous seasons, there's some kind of time gap. I'm not sure what it is, but it feels like, you know, months have passed since season three. Right. When we pick up season four. So that allows them to create some off-screen stuff for these characters to deal with. So maybe something has happened to Tilly during this period. And what's interesting with Tilly is that she was, you know, excelling and sort of being better and rising up. And now it's going to be sort of the opposite because she didn't do that well when she was in charge. And now she's not in charge anymore. So I think that, I think that Mary Wiseman is the right actress to explore the nuances of how that affects her. Now, getting back to Adira, in a way, Adira is now in the role that Tilly was in in season one. So it, it, it leaves them an opportunity to go into new places. And I feel like it's season three that was already happening, but they kind of didn't know what to do with Tilly. Uh, Hopefully for season four, they're using this as an opportunity for the character. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Yeah, I'm a big fan of her character and her acting. And I just think she brings a lot of layers to what she does. And then, you know, there def- <laughs> this was one of the wackier interviews <laughs> that we did. And so um, <laughs> I asked uh, David Ajala, who I have a huge crush on and resisted telling him that. So I would like some awards for not saying anything to him. <laughs> like, will you wink at me? I didn't ask him to wink. I didn't say you're so handsome. I was very well behaved. Um, but I asked him how Michael becoming captain changed uh, Book's relationship with her. And he had a very wonderful answer. I think it's made Cleveland Booker even more attracted to Michael Burnham. Because I think he looks and goes, oh, scrumptious. <laughs> <laughs> That's a crumpet I want to butter. <laughs> so British. <laughs> I mean, after that, we were all just laughing, like the other people doing interviews and and Mary and David. Like it was just that was it, man. The tone just went. He he really turned up his Britishness to eleven on that one. <laughs> you don't hear the word crumpet every day, so and that's a no. crumpet I want to butter. I was oh my god, I was laughing so hard. It was really good. So. <laughs> I just thought you guys would enjoy hearing that because some of these interviews get a little wacky. And of course, all of these interviews are up on the site with more than the stuff that we played. So you should go check them out and and extrapolate what you can. That's it for Discovery. We'll obviously have a lot more to say next week with 
the first episode of season four. Let's switch to Prodigy. And before we talk about this week's episode, there was actually some news. Um, the biggest news was that was the Prodigy... undoing of previous news. <laughs> yeah. So well, not yeah, the undoing. Ahead. So initially, sort of what based on things that were said. Um, <laughs> so we all had the sense that this first season was going to be 10 episodes and that they had a two season order, but it actually is a little more complicated than that. We knew that there was a 20 episode order. We thought, oh, that's two 10 episode seasons. And so they announced that they had ordered another season. And when I saw the email, I'm like, what do you mean? You know, you've ordered a second season how could you order a second season when you know you've already done that before but yeah no and i even pulled up old articles like from you know variety or hollywood reporter who all reported a two season order as it turns out the previously thought two season order for two 10 episode seasons was really a single 20 episode season which they are breaking into two 10 episode blocks each with their own story arc and the show's been picked up for another season, which we're assuming is another 20 episodes. That was the news this week. Which is great news, by the way. That means more than 20 episodes. So they're going to be doing Prodigy into 2023 and beyond, probably. But there's also going to be a break, which made us all sad. This week is episode four. Next week is episode five. They're going to then take a break until January 6th, when they're going to start running episodes six through 10 up till February three. And that'll end the first half of season one, the 10 episode arc. Right. The second half of season one, the other 10 of the first 20 will start sometime later in 2022. Now, why are they breaking up the first 10 episodes into two five episode chunks? I think it's Occam's razor. This is a very complex show to make. I mean, just watching this episode, it's like, oh my God, that's such an amazing shot. And so much labor goes into every frame, so much time, so much server time. And I think this show's just taking a long time to To, to be as beautiful as it is. Yeah. And look, yeah. I remember Discovery season one took a break, as people might recall, because they still had to finish work on it and they wanted it to be done. So but that was, again, a post-production situation. It makes sense. And things aren't pr still probably moving as quickly as they would like. Um, I'm disappointed because I'm really, really into this show. And I'm, uh, you know, it's a highlight of my week. But um, I'm, I am excited that there are going to be so many more. So what else do we got? One of the nice things about Prodigy is that the, the, the people who work on the show like talking about it on social media. And after episodes come out, they reveal little tidbits. And we've talked about Aaron Watke who's a co-executive producer on the show. He is so active on social. Like he's really responding to people. He's keeping an eye on what people are saying and, and, you know, contributing his own details. It's been nice. So he put up a map of the galaxy and he pinpointed where Tars Lamora is, which is on the border of the Delta Quadrant and the Beta Quadrant. So they are closer to home, much closer to home than Voyager was when it right. was lost in the Delta Quadrant. So it shouldn't um, take 70 years. Yeah, exactly. Maybe 65 years. 
you know, we've we've mentioned that it's weird that there's so many familiar races on Tars Lamora and and it's by design and he said on Twitter, the diviner clearly has a bounty preferring prisoners whose species are from a particular quadrant. So he is, you know, shopping for Federation Alpha Quadrant people for some yep. reason. Yep. The plot thickens. Yeah. So <laughs> who I'm knows so- why? I'm glad he's giving us these tidbits though. I like it. I like knowing more. You can know more and still want to see the next episode and still be excited about what's coming. Right. Now that you've learned that, you're not going to stop watching. In oh, fact, yeah, I'm done may... with Prodigy. That's all I, I've finished. Yeah. I just, I really think that the the live action shows are so precious with their mysteries that they're forgetting that we love details and it makes us more excited to watch, not less. So let's talk about Dreamcatcher, episode four of Star Trek Prodigy. Why don't you start off with your kind of first thoughts? All right. Well, I loved this one. So I thought it was fast paced. It was really, really fun. We were all very excited to go to a planet. They were excited to go to a planet. The thing that's, that struck me the most was that there was a really big running theme through this entire episode, which is about how they need to learn to count on each other and to be a cohesive crew. And there's this moment where Janeway says, as they're leaving and they don't hear her, and she says to look out for each other. And she says it like in a very maternal way and then they don't look out for each other and things go badly and when they start looking out for each other again things we get some hope so i thought besides being gorgeous to look at and revealing extra things about each character i thought thematically as a kids show they had a really great theme that the whole thing kind of got tied up nicely yeah that moment where rock talk is like hey where'd everyone go you knew things were gonna go bad no, and, and the angle they gave us of, like, this huge space between Rock Talk and the others, like, they're doing it visually as well as with the dialogue. It was it was a beautiful, sad moment. These kind of lessons to be learned and teamwork um, is a, you know, kind of a common theme in Star Trek. Lessons learned is something the show is doing overtly, and in fact, they're releasing these videos uh, Kate Mulgrew does one every week of what the kind of lesson of the week is and the one she released this week. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was about teamwork. Last week was about learning when to ask for help. So they they are, which is appropriate for a kid's show, building in these lessons into the show. Right, right. And there's this moment where Gwen says, they're not my crew which, you know, we all know that over time that's going to change. But, it, you know, it was it was a deep, rich theme that I thought kind of echoed through every scene. It felt very Star Trek. I mean, I... I well, I mean, it also felt like episodes we've sort of seen. <laughs> yeah. But last week, as I said, was kind of this weird interim episode where they almost had to, like, define the rules of the ship and the kids and, you know, show the stakes and explain that they're cadets now and yeah, I, I liked it, but I, you know, I certainly didn't love it. I love this episode because all that stuff's out of the way. And now this is the show, right? That they're, you know, what we expect the show to be, which is they're going to have these adventures and they're going to be learning lessons and it's going to be familiar Star Trek things. I mean, we haven't seen this exact thing before, but we've seen a lot of stuff like this, starting with the shore leave 
you know, back in the original series. And of course, you know, Voyager's Bliss and uh, If Wishes Were Horses. And I could call out a dozen episodes where they're riffing on this, including, you know, the Thorian radiation from If Wishes Were Horses was a big clue as to what was going on on the planet. Again, showing that people like Aaron know what they're doing. I do think it was closest to Bliss. The diff- the big difference, in, I mean, Bliss, they were being eaten by a big creature. And the big difference, I think, was that there was a sort of collective delusion in Bliss, where it was that they were that they'd found a wormhole that would take them to earth. And the reason that seven and Naomi Wildman were not affected was because they didn't share that wish. And so the big difference here was that everybody got their individual fantasies, which was a great way to reveal more about these characters. And they did it really well versus something that everybody wanted. But I thought it, to me, that's the closest parallel. It's also an episode I love. So maybe I'm biased. But that's kind of the point of they used a classic Star Trek setup, which I think we're going to see a lot more of this on the show. Yeah. Well, it's a Star Trek show. Yeah. But they were using it to reveal more about the characters, which was more important here than like in Bliss, um, because each of their fantasies taught us a lesson about the motivations of each of these characters, which is really what the show the episode was about is that each of them have their own issues. Um, yeah. Doll, doll wants to meet his parents. Rock talk just wants to be loved. Um, Jacob Pog <laughs> just wants to eat. Zero loves a mystery. Zero is, is just fascinated. It, it probably was a little Spock call out when he goes fascinating because he is that kind of character for the well, show. Right. And, and what he has in common that with Spock too is that can he can get caught up in the scientific observation and forget the personal danger, or or rather observes the personal danger, um, very objectively, even though he's the one who could have something terrible happen to him. Yeah, this is definitely two episodes in a row where they are. Oh, we're all going to die! Isn't that amazing? Zero makes me laugh every time they talk about the fascination of the thing that's trying to eat or kill them. Was Zero never any danger because Zero's essentially a robot body and an energy being on the inside that could probably just float away, right? It's a good question. It's a good question in terms of Zero's whole approach to dangerous situations. And we don't even know what Zero knows. So, right. Like about the danger that they might be in. So it's all, I mean, there's so many funny things with Zero. Like, like Zero is, is this energy being and yet is inside this robot body with oddly retractable legs, so that when someone speaks to Zero, Zero turns to face the person. And then I'm thinking, well, does Zero even have a face? I mean, I assume that it's a kid's show, so they have to do that. But there is something sort of that doesn't quite make sense, but is still fun about that. We also learn about Gwyn. Well, we learned that Gwyn's full name is Gwyndala, but... Gwyn has her own little fantasy with her father, and this was a bit heartbreaking. Yeah. The thing about Gwyn, I felt like, so our two main characters ultimately are going to be Dal and Gwyn. And I felt like there was a really great great balance between the two of them, because they were going back and forth between good choices and very selfish choices. Like, like Dal taunting Gwyn when Gwyn says, you know, what happened to, you know, we could have been friends. He's very cavalier. 
He's like, oh, we'll bring you a souvenir, whatever. He's, he's, he's not kind. He's very mean. And that's what makes her angry enough, really, to be determined to take over the ship and do what she does. Gwyn never thinks about, oh, well, when the Diviner comes, what's he going to do to these people? Like, what's he going to do to Rock Talk? What's he going to do to these people? And Gwyn doesn't trouble herself with that. She's not thinking about that. She's only thinking about what she wants, which is, for the most part, what Dal is thinking. And then, of course, they both have these moments of redemption where they suddenly realize, um, well, they both realize that the thing they really want most is something that they're not going to have. And they recognize, to the point that when it is given to them, they recognize that it's false immediately. Because somehow they're going to have to find common ground. And Yes. The question is, will Gwyn reject her father or will it take her father betraying her or something for her to come on board? Hopefully she could come to this decision on her own because she has enough information now to know that her dad's kind of evil. Right. But yet she's still on team evil, right? Because as soon as she could, she, you know, we learned that, uh, as we talked about before, she could control her little liquid metal sword thing. So cool. And as soon as she breaks out, the first thing she does is take over the ship and call her dad. Yep. Flip the switch on Janeway. Woo. Her epiphany there was, oh, he's been preparing me to control the ship all my life because she was able to master the ship immediately, including Janeway, which was pretty impressive. Yeah. No, everything she did was impressive. She'd be a good captain if it weren't for the fact that she was on (laughs) team evil. That's I kept, I kept thinking, you know, maybe she'd be a better captain, (laughs) but he's, I think he's going to get there. And I, you know, it's, I, I think they're both, they're really on these parallel paths. That sort of crisscross and, you know, where one is cruel, then the other one is cruel. One is compassionate, then the other one is compassionate, just not towards each other. But I think at some point, maybe there will even be a rivalry for who the captain should be. Dal definitely sprung into action and saved everyone. So they've kind of got the man of action or boy of action side of him down. It's just that he still has these selfish, gung-ho tendencies that he needs to deal with. Right. Even at the beginning, when they were all excited about going to the planet, he could have just right away said why he thought it wasn't a good idea. And just the way he delivered it was like, oh, yeah, we can stay. And then he waits till everybody gets excited. And then he explains why they shouldn't. So which was just kind of mean, like, let's get them all excited and then crush them. Although actually, he was right that they shouldn't have gone there, that they're supposed to be fleeing the diviner and instead they made this stop, which is so funny. I have to say, in my household, we occasionally have Janeway arguments. And my husband constantly argues that Janeway's thing is, oh, look, there's a dangerous thing. I know we're on our way to this important place, but let's go Let's go to that dangerous place. And we argue about this sometimes. And this time, wow, she, she really did one of those Janeway things that he complains about. And this was supposed to be a starter planet for them, right? And yet she brings them to the Herogen system. Hello? Yeah, I know. Herogen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One would think she would have mentioned, oh, by the way, the Herogen are these ferocious race of giant hunters. Like what's next? Borg space? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There was a couple of interesting moments with Janeway. And I can't tell if this is being written into the show or this is her performance, but... Where do you come down on, does she know that they're not cadets? 
I I think she knows because she said this. She said, since you are cadets, like there was just something about the way that she said it. And I think she knows that that Rock Talk, at least, is is a child. Like even just the way she said, like when when Rock Talk said, you're not coming. And she said, oh, I wish I could. And like this very sweet voice. Getting back to your earlier point of she had to convince them, she threatened Dow with contacting Starfleet to tell them that he's not complying with standard operational orders to explore strange new worlds. Right. Now, the immediate thought is, oh, wait, that's a good point. She did offer to take them to Federation space. Why hasn't she contacted or asked them to contact Starfleet? It's the obvious thing to do for a group of cadets on a ship in the Delta Quadrant to contact Starfleet, right? Yep. So was she bluffing? Yeah, I thought so, actually. There's a lot of nuance to her performance and to Jim. I, I like you pointing out that moment in the when she was saying goodbye to them and you could sh- you should all. It was very wistful. It was very maternal. There's definitely a lot of personality to this hologram. Yeah, they're giving her they're giving her a lot. And then also, I was just thinking, like Kate Mulgrew must have thought that those evil Janeway scenes were fantastic. Like when she's all covered in the vines and she's in his face and all of that stuff. I was like, oh my God, I can, I kept imagining like Kate Mulgrew watching that, those scenes and just being like, wow, I never thought I'd look like that. Like that was really cool. So you have a real Janeway has all this nuance and personality and sweetness, but evil Janeway was pretty cool too. Well, she did get to play evil Janeway once before. Yes, but this was, I mean, the way they drew, I just mean the way she physically looked. Right, she was With, more monster Janeway. She was monster Janeway, and she did this like weird dive into it, like when she first did this sort of glidey dive into it. It was incredible to look at. And I, myself, would have been terrified if I were a small child, because I'm easily scared. I thought the same thing, because the, the Diviner was kind of scary, and Janeway was definitely scary. But you know, when I asked David if he thought anything was scary in this episode, he's like, no. I've seen scary. <laughs> so earlier we talked about lessons. Another thing they're doing with the show is sort of slowly but surely trekifying the audience and the show more and more. So each week we learn something new, right? So this week we learned about M-class planets, right? Yeah. Which is a very specific Star Trekian kind of thing. Um, and, you know, they made a joke out of that, but now... They've got the notion that these are the ones you want to look for. But they didn't get into the minutia of why they're called M-Class because of Machar class and Vulcans. And, you know, we don't need to hear that. (laughs) No, we just need the practical application, which I think they're doing a great job of of getting the science in there. And stuff that's familiar to us as Star Trek fans, but actually explaining just enough to keep so that kids know what it is and what they would stay interested so last week we learned about the replicators. This week it was the tricorder and the phaser, which again, two iconic Star Trek pieces of technology. They had a little fun with them. They were both used in the episode well. And we talked about, should you be handing kids phasers? Um, like that, there, there's a question of like, did, I mean, it would have been nice if Janeway showed them how to set the setting. She said it's set to stun on default, but like, you know, should they, because you, know, you can just pump those things up to super kill and vaporize something. Right. Um, but they need to do it. I think it's the right choice because they need to do it in a fun way. So a fun way isn't her showing them how to use it. A fun way is Jenkin Pog stunning himself. 
<laughs> Again, it's nice to see these little bits of Trek tech, but there's a big piece of Trek tech we've yet to hear about, which are transporters. So I assume that's coming because there's no reason why the ship doesn't have a transporter. Yeah, every ship has a transporter. What's interesting is the Protostar seems to be the first Star Trek ship that is built to land. So when they show up on planets, it seems to be... Because Janeway, I assume, told them to land the ship, not to beam down to the planet. So this seems to be the standard protocol for this ship when it finds a strange new world to land. Right. And I think that's an interesting choice because in a way... Yeah, as we know from Star Trek lore, you know, this transporter was invented because it was too expensive for them to land the ship every week. Although right. how you how you'd land the USS Enterprise is hard to imagine. It was expensive and it was time because they just they thought, well, if we if we're spending all this time, let's say going back and forth in shuttlecrafts like that's a big eater up of time. And it's fine. And the landing scene was fine. And although you have to wonder, like, why doesn't zero use an auto landing if, if they learned the autopilot isn't there an auto landing but we did get to see how zero still trying to figure out how to land things <laughs> it's a little bumpy i also just thought on like they just overall i thought they they touched on these strong emotional touch points that were very effective. Like whether it was Rock Talk, whose response when she finds out that everything was fake is like, I want to go back to the ship. Like she's almost crying. It's just, it's that same tone in her voice that got me the, you know, the last time when she was talking to Gwen. Like there's this extra emotion. And and with Dal, there is this extra emotion of, he has this yearning for something he can't ever have because he doesn't remember his parents. Like there's this tragedy running through that I think really reaches out to kids and me <laughs> to, to feel an, an emotional anchoring in these characters. It's really well done. Rock Talk is a great character to have these emotional moments. Although you start really thinking the smart thing to do is to find Rock Talk a nice family. You know, she's too young to be running around planets with a phaser and, uh, you know, it's, it's too dangerous for a little kid. Well, she didn't do any worse than anybody else. <laughs> Jank and Pog was not doing any better. Zero wasn't doing any better. So I want to know what your niece and nephew thought. Again, I really love watching the episodes with them because it's a, it's just a different shared experience. So I recommend it for anyone with kids or nieces and nephews or grandchildren. Even my 18-year-old is really enjoying this show and is in college now, but whenever we get a visit for the weekend, there's always, oh, can we watch Prodigy? Which is pretty fun for me. So we were talking a little bit before about how kids are just more sophisticated consumers of content. And one of the things that was fascinating to me was, well, first of all, something we haven't mentioned, there was a fart joke in this episode. <laughs> Did they like the fart joke? Did they laugh? It went right past them. They didn't even notice it, really. I had to stop and rewind it. And uh, even when, it, you know, they had a moment to kind of take it in, it just had no, it just didn't, you know, oh, it was kind of, I, I, yeah, because I, I was thinking, oh, fart jokes are just, but the problem is a good fart joke just needs to be a little bit more overt or you need the sound effect. I was like, just going to say you need the sound of the fart. It needs to be like Blazing Saddles. 
<laughs> right. David did laugh in the in the swamp because the swamp was making fart noises. That was funny. <laughs> but it showed how he was really paying attention. You had a question about when he was going through the swamp and he had a spacesuit on and you wondered what? How could he smell? How can he smell through a space mask? Oh, that's a great question. He is a smart kid. I mean, even though I theorize that they, the plant monster planet thing could be creating smell illusions, which, you know, seems plausible. There was a mention in the episode, although I guess never confirmed, that spores were causing the illusions. So you think he should have been protected from them? I don't know. I actually felt like from the even when he put it on, I just I thought the helmet was kind of loose. Like, I remember thinking, oh, I don't think that's going to protect him. Of course, when he put on the suit, was the door already open? But it does, because when you think of how many times have we seen landing parties go down to planets and you wonder, why aren't they taking more precautions? Right. So Jankum showed that he was kind of smart to take this precaution, although in this case it didn't work and David picked up on it. Yeah, he la- he lacked follow through. I mean, I did think that it was it just sort of seemed to be sitting on top and didn't seem sealed in, I thought. And I actually think your explanation is true, which is it was all an illusion. So what's the difference between an illusion smell or taste because he was eating dirt. Right. But thinking it was stew. So this planet was able to really mess with your head. Let's yep. face it. Now, something that's been a recurring theme with Annie is she's always seen the good in Gwyn. I mean, because when I, when I watch this show, I, you know, I know that eventually Gwyn's going to get on the good side, but there's not a lot of evidence of that. But Annie really picks up on it. What do you think of Gwyn now? Because, um, you know, you've been saying that she's got good in her. Do you still feel that? Yeah, because also she got Murph, and I could tell she kind of felt badly when... She saw how disappointed they were in her, that she was going to, like, risk, leave them stranded there, even though she was a prisoner. And also, I kind of felt bad for her, because she realized it wasn't her dad when he, the plants offered to give her a hug. So that's kind of sad, like, thinking that her dad would never do that, never give her a hug. Like, that was what was strange. So I kind of felt bad. Now, Annie is getting exactly what they want her to get, which is great. Like, I'm so happy that it's going through because that is the tragedy of, of Gwyn is that what she wants from her father, she's not going to get because it's not there. And so much to the point that when she sees him doing it, she knows that it's fake, just like Dal seeing his parents. So I, I, I love that Annie picked up on this and is really feeling that connection to Gwyn because otherwise people are just going to hate her. Right, because she's trying to turn them into the evil guy. She did save Murph. That was her kind of saving grace in this episode. And so that brings up the whole issue of Murph. They both love Murph. While we're watching the episode, David just at one point said, Murph is my favorite. <laughs> his his favorite was Dal a couple episodes ago. So he changes his mind on this, um, as kids do. Not just kids. So I wanted to I, I talk to them a bit about Murph and if they have you know, what they think is going on with Murph, who remains as designed to be a bit of a mystery. And David, you said that 
Murph is your favorite character? Mm-hmm. What do you think it, Murph is? I think he's sort of a blob thing. Do they know his species? No. No one knows who um, Murph is except Murph. Right, and, and the question is, is when Murph is making those sounds, is Murph talking or just, you know, like, do you think Murph is any smarter than a dog? Yes, actually, though. Because, well, he can talk, but he just can't talk like them. He doesn't know how to say their words or... So do you think Murph's kind of like R2-D2, where he just has his own... R2-D2 said blob. (laughs) I think Murph is going to meet, like, on one of these planets, I think he's going to meet another of the species. Another Murph. Like, maybe a female Murph, and then they're going to get married. (laughs) And then then they're going to be like, I'm going to stay on this planet. Okay, bye. They're going to get married. I that is so that's maybe I don't I don't know if we're going to see a wedding this season. I'm not sure that's really in the cards. Um I do think it's a really interesting question though because there was that scene where Murph goes to see Gwyn in the brig and makes some sounds and Gwyn says you're smarter than you look and then Murph gets distracted by that by something Rob- he can eat and yeah, the little robot. And then she says, maybe not. But I was wondering if she could understand him. I don't think she can. I think David's right <laughs> that <laughs> Murph is saying something, but no one can understand it, what it is. So it is a lot like R2-D2. Um, although in, in his case, Luke could understand R2-D2. C-3PO could, but no one else could. Right. So I think you know, maybe they'll find someone who can speak Murph. I don't think Murph is you know, super intelligent, but there's definitely, uh, yeah, but more intelligent than a dog. So I think that's where we're at. We're in some kind of um, zone in between. And I do think that we are going to learn. I, I can't, could see finding a piece of Murph's origin, you know, maybe another Murph-like creature. I don't know if it's a female Murph, because I'm not sure Murph has a gender, but... Uh... <laughs> you can't really look underneath to find out. <laughs> I mean, we have been calling Murph a he, but who knows? I think they call Murph, Murph a he. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And again, this was a last minute addition to the show. They wanted to give the kids a dog, and they're you know it allows them to do things like... Because I think the character of Gwyn was problematic in that they want to give Gwyn this arc, but they need ways to show empathy with Gwyn. So they had the little kitten in the first episodes and we're still worried about the Cation kitten. And I think here Murph, she can show a connection with Murph and it makes, you know, it humanizes Gwyn more. Yeah. It was a smart move to add Murph to the show. And cause Murph is just Murph. adorable. I did like uh Janeway saying like Murph will keep me company. I thought that was kind of cute. Yeah. By the way, this episode ended on a cliffhanger, which surprised me and you. Mm-hmm. But the, the kids were totally fine with that. They're like, yeah, sure. no, no biggie. And maybe that's just a change since we were kids. Serialized shows, even kids shows, are now uh, normal. Binging and, you know, streaming. It's all, that's just how things are done. You don't wrap everything up at the end anymore. That's kind of old fashioned. 
Yeah. So we should expect more of this because, you know, we started with a two-parter, then we had kind of our bottle episode, and then we go immediately into another two-parter, maybe more, because they're still on the planet at the end, and then we're going to have a hiatus. I, I, I have a feeling the planet storyline will probably end at the end of episode five. Then we'll get the Diviner showing up or something like that. With a yeah. bit of a cliffhanger, I think. That's pretty much it for episode four. Excited for the episode five quarter season finale. It's not a mid-season finale. It's a quarter season finale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, this is the show's been a surprising delight. And uh, I really enjoyed this week's episode. Yeah, so did I. Loved it. And and. Again, just kudos to the designers because it is there are so many shots that I just stop and stare at. Like you can't take your eyes off it. It's it's beautiful and complex. Let's pivot to our bits of the week before we wrap things up. Mine is kind of a local LA thing. There's a healthcare company in LA called LA Care Health, which is a big publicly funded healthcare system. And they're running a COVID PSA campaign using Leonard Nimoy Spock with outdoor advertising, including billboards. So it shows Spock and the Vulcan salute, and it's a save humanity, get vaccinated. It's the logical thing to do. And it's just, it's just delightful to see <laughs> these is. things around town. I'm surprised they were allowed to use that image of Spock, but that's great. Well, yeah, CBS gave the okay, and they've been working with the Nimoy family, who've also been promoting this. And lung health uh, was a big, you know, COPD was a big important issue for him. So, you know, the family are very much on board. Yeah. Leonard Nimoy may no longer be with us, but he's still inspiring us. So for mine, we had sad news this week, which is that Dean Stockwell, famous actor, um, died age 85. He was in an Enterprise episode called Detained in season one. The big deal, of course, was that he and Scott Bakula co-starred in Quantum Leap. And so anytime they could get these two together again, kind of made everybody really happy. Um, and so like he also showed up on uh, NCIS New Orleans, which is Scott Bakula's current show. So Scott Bakula wrote this really lovely post on Instagram all about like when he first met Dean Stockwell, which was at his Quantum Leap audition and how great he was to work with, how he, you know, he had been, Dean Stockwell started acting. He was on Broadway when he was six and then was signed to a studio. So he said he was always very protective of child actors because he remembered what it was like being one, that the only time he ever complained was when they called him on the golf course. Like there were all these great, wonderful stories I think it's we're, we're going to link to the post because it's quite lovely and well-written and and sad and happy at the same time. And I also am going to recommend that everybody go find out more about Dean Stockwell, because besides being this actor who started when he was six, he quit the business a couple times. He came back. He was also like a writer and an, and an album. Does it like record album cover designer for Neil Young? Like there is just crazy. It is crazy. There is a lot going on. So we will link both to the Scott Bakula post, which is lovely. And um, there's a great write up of just Dean Stockwell's really amazing, incredible, surprising life. It was very sad news. For yeah. Sure. And I was a also, big, big fan. we were sort of hoping for that. That Quantum Leap reboot had been talked about a little bit. Yeah, a reunion, I, mean, I guess. So that's no, not... I mean, Bakula recently talked about a full-on reboot, and he did talk about Dean being part of it. Yeah, 
I I assume they could they could find a way to honor him, but still do the show. I could assume if they really want to do the show, if yeah. Scott wants if Scott wants to do it without Dean is the is the big question. Yeah, mark. he might not. I mean, he had such a good time working with him, and you know, it might just be something that just you just start. You don't want to be in a situation where you're just feeling a loss the whole time. I know that the, you know the sci-fi fan community just really felt this one you know whenever someone from star trek who was even in one episode passes away we always do something on social media and i just i saw all the responses and there were thousands of them you know just yeah people you know there's just it was all lovely and it's always you know nice to see even though sad news on twitter just to see this kind of outpouring of affection and love and appreciation and honoring of someone honestly he had the craziest life like he took a break in the mid 60s to just go hang out and hate ashbury like come on truly a fascinating guy and do yourself a favor folks and go read up on him we'll put up a link but you can do do more it'll you'll be rewarded so that's it for another week of all access star trek next week is going to be a big episode because we're going to have two episodes of star trek to cover Prodigy and first episode of season four of Star Trek Discovery. I can't believe it. We're just a week away. So thank you again and see you next week. Bye-bye.